I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 9 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a two-part case. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. Before he passed away, Harold whispered to his ten-year-old son Patrick, remember to be good. When taking a brief glance at a black-and-white picture of Patrick captured about a decade later, you would not be alone in believing he took heed of his father's advice. Patrick is in a photo booth with his chin up. He has high cheekbones and a thick, dark shock of hair. He stares beyond the camera, of somewhere else. Patrick is wearing a tie, and a biro pen lid pokes out of the pocket of a wide-striped blazer that looks like it could be a doctored school uniform. Your eyes are then drawn to something on his arm, matching the same black on the trim of his jacket. The unmistakable angles of the swastika are at the forefront of the photograph. It is clear this is something Patrick wanted to document.
various photographs that have been widely published chronicle the life and, in some instances, the emotions of Patrick Mackay. One of the first pictures of Mackay was from the mid-1950s when he was a toddler. The photo was taken when he was perched on the lap of his father Harold. His mother Marion and his younger sister are sitting next to him. A typical nuclear family? Not exactly. Harold does not mirror his wife's expression. Marion's mouth is poised in a smile, but her eyes aren't as joyful. Harold's face is rigid, like his shoulders, as he stares at the camera. Harold Mackay had served in the army during World War II. He was emotionally traumatised by the experience. After he returned home, he began to drink heavily to cope with the distress he felt. A few years later, Harold once again left England, this time for an accountancy job in South America in what was, in 1950, British Guiana. It was part of the British West Indies but is now known as Guyana. While working at his job at a sugar plantation, Harold met a local woman called Marion. They were soon to be married, and within six weeks they had moved in together, finding a property back in England in the county of Kent. Just as quickly, Marion became pregnant with the couple's first child, Patrick, then not long after a second, Ruth, followed by the couple's third and final child, Heather, who was born two years later. In spite of the considerable change in his circumstances, Harold did not stop drinking. His young family bore the brunt of his mood swings. When he was intoxicated, Harold was angry and agitated, frequently lashing out against those people close to him. A decade would pass since Patrick's birth, and then the abuse towards the family came to an abrupt stop, much like the life of Harold Mackay. In 1962, following complications from alcoholism, Harold suffered heart failure leaving his wife and children alone. But his son, Patrick, not even a teenager at the time, refused to travel to his father's birthplace in Scotland to attend the funeral. In the child's mind, he had convinced himself that Harold Mackay was still alive. A photograph of his father, which Patrick carried around with him, appeared to be a highly cherished item. However, holding this belief was the least of Patrick Mackay's problems. He was born in September 1952 and brought up in Dartford, Kent. Kent is where the Mackay family chose to stay while the children were growing up, although after the death of Harold, their mother Marion took them to what was then British Guiana, where she had met her now deceased husband. She did not stay there long, preferring to return to Kent to raise the children in Gravesend. In 
but as a single parent, Marion Mackay was struggling. Her only son's behaviour was uncontrollable. Enacting any form of discipline was nigh on impossible. Some of the young Mackay's actions were extremely concerning, but not punishable by law. They were often classified as, quote, domestic. At one point, Marion was even strangled by her son. The police were called and took him away temporarily, only for him to return soon after. The family were only briefly free from the violence Harold had inflicted on them, as Marion's young son slid into his father's place, taking on the self-appointed title of Man of the House a role that Patrick Mackay believed included beating his mother and sisters. A clear warning sign today was not seen as such a concern back then. Patrick Mackay began to torture animals. Please jump ahead 45 seconds if you would prefer not to hear the details. Mackay captured birds then glued their feet to the tarmac of a nearby road. Under the assumption that the creature would typically scatter with the sight of a car, not to mention the noise of the engine, the driver of an oncoming vehicle would be unaware the bird could not move. The animal was killed but not before a frantic struggle by the creature. The driver and the occupants of the car were distressed when they realised what had happened. Patrick Mackay had a ringside seat to the entire scenario, playing out just like he had planned. The family tortoise also met with a cruel and unnecessary end at the hands of the young boy of the house. Mackay tossed the helpless animal onto a lit bonfire. Fire would be used again by the young Patrick Mackay. At 11 years old, he set alight the curtains of a church. Thankfully, no one was hurt, but the building was burned to the ground in the process. Pyromania, an obsessive desire to set fires, is another issue that if flagged today would be an indicator of considerable concern, most certainly combined with Mackay's other behaviours. Trying to burn the curtains in a Catholic church and petty theft of garden ornaments meant Patrick Mackay would appear for the first time at Dartford Juvenile Court, just a year after his father Harold provided instructions from his deathbed. Remember to be good. Police visits were a recurring event in the Mackay household. Sometimes their presence was required two or more times a week. And as such, Mackay was moved in and out of care homes and specialist schools for behaviourally disturbed youths. Mackay's antisocial and destructive behaviours meant he had been convicted, detained or sectioned under the Mental Health Act nearly 20 times by his early 20s. However, his mother Marion always seemed to run to her son's aid. She was frequently working with the authorities to get him home again. 
Mackay's physical assaults had not been limited to the four walls of his home. Both in school and when socialising outside, he was a danger to anyone he came across. Mackay's headmaster at Hawesdown Secondary Modern School in Kent later reported the pupil as a violent boy who always needed supervision. In one incident, Mackay seriously harmed two 12-year-olds by hitting their heads on a concrete floor. They were three years younger than their tormentor, and this seemed to be a recurring theme throughout his schooling, bullying younger children. It was this case that was severe enough to see the youth in court again. While on remand, Patrick Mackay tried to end his life for the first time, and he was transferred to a psychiatric hospital for three days. A few months later, another incident occurred with a younger boy. Mackay tried to strangle his victim while simultaneously stealing the child's watch. An incident Mackay later admitted would have led to a killing if he was not stopped by someone else. Throughout Patrick Mackay's detention in jails and hospitals, he was assessed by professionals. When Mackay was 15, a psychiatrist, Dr. Leonard Carr, chillingly predicted the teenager's future, reporting Mackay would grow to be a cold, psychopathic killer. The doctor had diagnosed the teenager as a psychopath. Dr. Carr was the first of many doctors to arrive at this conclusion. The Oxford Dictionary summarises a psychopath as a person suffering from a serious mental illness that causes them to behave in a violent way toward other people. Mackay now had a diagnosis, but there was no cure, and psychopathy was and still is difficult, sometimes impossible, to treat. He was languishing in a hospital when in December 1969... His mother won a tribunal hearing to have him released and sent home. Just over half a year later, things came to a head and Mackay was sent back to a psychiatric hospital. The young man took advantage of this unsecured environment. In less than a week, he had snuck out. Five weeks passed and the teenager was finally tracked down at his mother's home in Kent. Mackay was taken into custody and held at Moss Side Hospital in Merseyside, a facility that would later form what was to be Ashworth Hospital. It was here where Mackay was diagnosed for a second time as a psychopath. His stay in Mossside stretched out over 24 months before history repeated itself and his mother Marion would again have her son released into her care. Patrick Mackay's bedroom perhaps offered some clues as to his mental state. It was full of self-modified dolls and memorabilia. When he was in a dark mood, he would take the figurines and burn out their eyes. 
His unhealthy obsession with Nazism and a preoccupation with the study of dictators was growing at an alarming rate. Around this time, Mackay began to refer to himself as Franklin Bolvolt I. He would go on to leave Kent and his mother's care, relocating to lodgings in London. Mackay rented a room from a couple who had children. The only possible living arrangement he could afford for someone in and out of work in an expensive city. In the capital, Mackay managed to make a few friends as well as gaining employment, even if he stuck with the jobs he successfully obtained for only a couple of days. His landlords, whom he had taken to calling Mum and Dad, saw a young man with two completely different sights. When sober during the day, Mackay was pleasant, even kind. Still at night, he was more often than not intoxicated, and he became argumentative, aggressive, and strange. Patrick Mackay drank a lot of alcohol and smoked copious amounts of cannabis. It is reported each night he typically consumed eight to nine pints of beer, plus a generous amount of spirits. A photograph at this time shows Mackay as a young man in London's Trafalgar Square. He is with a friend who stands just behind him. Mackay is in the forefront. Pigeons surround his feet. Two are perched on one arm, one on the other, peering into his upturned palm for food. Mackay's head is turned slightly away from the camera but his eyes remain focused on the lens. His mouth forms a half-smile. Despite being in his early twenties, Patrick Mackay had been charged with a string of offences including assault, robbery, theft and burglary. He would be arrested again in May 1973 for stealing a cheque from someone he knew a priest. They had met after his discharge from Mossside Hospital. The pair had formed a friendship, but that was shattered after the theft. Mackay was ordered to pay the money back and was handed a two-year suspended sentence in court. Unfortunately, this was not the last Father Anthony Crean saw of his former acquaintance. Less than two months after his suspended sentence, Mackay was occupying the back seat of a police car yet again. This time his actions were less calculated and more menacing. Mackay brandished a metal stake in the street while shouting anti-Semitic abuse. Another court appearance would follow, but surprisingly Mackay was a free man. His sentence was again deferred, this time for six months. Left to his own devices, Patrick Mackay would prove Dr. Leonard Carr right. 
He was about to become the cold, psychopathic killer the doctor had predicted. Echoing his past preference from his school days of bullying children that were smaller than him, it appeared as though Patrick Mackay continued to victimise people that he could easily overpower if a confrontation arose. He was a backsnatcher, a thief. His favourite targets were the elderly women from the most moneyed areas of London, like Knightsbridge and Chelsea. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule and of course the cost well better help can solve those problems it's totally online and built around your schedule it's surprisingly affordable too connect with a credentialed therapist by phone video or online chat all from the comfort of your home Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand, and now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. 
What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safer families in EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. Isabella Griffiths was an 87-year-old wealthy widow who lived with her three Siamese cats at 19 Sheen Walk in Chelsea. On a winter's day in early 1974, Isabella was struggling to get home with her shopping. The bags were loaded with heavy tins of cat food. A young man walking along the street saw the elderly woman in difficulty and offered to help. She accepted the kindly gesture and they both went inside her sizeable five-storey home. They had a pleasant conversation, which was not unusual for Isabella who friends described as kind and nice. When the young man left, on his way out, Isabella told him he could come back any time. Maybe she was just being polite and did not expect Patrick Mackay to take her up on the offer unannounced. A short time later on Valentine's Day, after he had been out drinking, Patrick Mackay had come to blows with his landlords, Herbert and Violet Cowdery. He stormed out of the house. After almost strangling Violet in the tussle, Mackay decided to travel to the home of the trusting old lady he had helped with her shopping. Mackay would later provide an account of what happened and said that Isabella did not want to let him in considering there was a drunk man she did not know on her doorstep. Mackay barged his way in regardless. After he killed Isabella Griffiths, Patrick Mackay stayed a while at the scene and drank a bottle of scotch. He left and was spotted walking along a train line near Knightsbridge in London. He was approached by a police officer. Mackay admitted that he wanted to kill himself by stepping in front of an oncoming train. He was taken to a psychiatric hospital, but Mackay only stayed for two days before he insisted on leaving. The body of Isabella Griffiths had not yet been discovered. Over the next four days, the bottles of milk and newspapers began to accumulate outside her property. The neighbours became concerned and so decided to call the Chelsea police station. An officer attended the address accompanied by a social worker. When there was no response at the front door, the officer clambered through a small basement window. Inside the property, every door he found was locked. There was a door with glass panelling leading into the kitchen, 
Still, unfortunately, it was frosted, and through it the young officer could not see much. Had it been clear, he would have spotted that Isabella Griffiths had come to harm. Unaware of what had transpired in the locked room next to him, the officer came to the conclusion that Isabella had likely left of her own accord, as he was told she owned a second home away from London in the countryside. As the days passed, Isabella's neighbours grew more concerned. Her uncollected deliveries multiplied. Friends knocked on her door to visit, but there was no response. At one point, a box of chocolates was stolen from her porch by a secretary. Someone saw the incident, which was reported. The unsuspecting young woman was sought for questioning by police regarding the disappearance of the homeowner. Approaching two weeks without word from Isabella Griffiths, another officer went to Cheen Walk hoping to relieve the fears of Isabella's neighbours. On February 27th, PC Peter Jeffrey arrived at the property testing windows and doors to see if he could gain entry to the home. When looking in through the ground floor kitchen window of the tidy property, he noticed something out of place. At first, he focused on what appeared to be a pile of rags crumpled on the kitchen floor. But when his eyes focused, he realised the shape of the object was a body. The officer ran around the front of the house, and with sheer force, PC Jeffrey kicked open the front door. Frustratingly, the kitchen door did not give way so easily. After desperately trying for a few minutes, PC Jeffrey changed tact. He ran to a building site nearby to borrow a hammer. When he finally gained access to the kitchen, in the commotion, Isabella's cat scrambled outside. It was obvious the person on the floor had been dead for some time. The body had been covered with two pieces of fabric that were later found to be curtains. The officer called a neighbour to confirm it was Isabella Griffiths. It had been almost two weeks since she had been killed. The last confirmed sighting of Isabella was a solid and substantiated one. She had lunch with some friends and left with an acquaintance, Christine Ford, at approximately 3pm. The pair went their separate ways on Pimlico Road. Still independent, 87-year-old Isabella caught the bus to get some shopping. It was presumed Isabella Griffiths had been slain as part of a theft. A checkbook and some cash appeared to be missing. All her house keys were also taken. Seemingly the killer had locked up when he left the house. Both the police and neighbours were unsure why Isabella was targeted by her killer. Her killer. 
her wealth was considerably less than most of the households on her street. One of her more well-to-do neighbours unsympathetically said Isabella, quote, dressed like a tramp. It was thought the weapon used in the stabbing was a large blade, possibly a kitchen knife. The murderer appeared to have taken it with them. The nearby river was searched for the knife, but no matches were discovered. A pathologist identified a single stab wound to Isabella's lung and discovered that her attacker tried to strangle their elderly victim. A small bone in Isabella's neck had been broken. Bruising to her throat showed it had been squeezed tightly. Her arms were then positioned across her chest after she died. The formal identification of Isabella Griffiths was made by a distant relative who sadly only knew the victim's age, not her date of birth. In her will, Isabella left £51,000 to a school charity in Hertfordshire and £30,000 to Cat's Protection. Christine Ford confirmed at the inquest held in July that she was the last of Isabella's friends to see the pensioner alive. Chief Inspector Thomas Ridley was working on the case. It was announced that the police were closing in on the suspect. Inspector Ridley attended the inquest and was asked by the coroner if there was any evidence pointing to one particular person. Ridley responded, There is some evidence at the moment, but insufficient to substantiate a charge. Unfortunately, that was not true. A robber had become prolific in the wealthier pockets of London, targeting female pensioners. Police at this point did not link Isabella's killing to these crimes until later. A little over a year would pass and the young man responsible for the death of Isabella Griffiths would commit another killing. The second victim was similar to the first, elderly and wealthy. Patrick Mackay had spent most of his time in between the attacks incarcerated in Wormwood Scrubs Prison. He had been convicted of burglary, possessing offensive weapons and forgery. While Mackay was behind bars, the older population of the wealthy parts of London could breathe a sigh of relief. But not for long. The killer, who would go on to be dubbed in the press as the Beast of Belgravia and the Devil's Disciple, was back among the public. Mackay later said of this stint in prison, After I came out of jail, I felt terrible for a long time.
Adele Price, an 89-year-old widow, was walking home to her apartment in Lounge Square in Belgravia on March 10th, 1975. As she walked into the communal area of the building, a person behind her jangled their keys as if they too were going to enter one of the homes. The pair politely acknowledged each other. Then the young man told Adele he was having a funny turn and did not feel well. He said he felt dizzy and had cramps in his legs. Feeling empathetic to the stranger, Adele guided him into her home and offered the man a cup of tea. But Patrick Mackay was not sick. He just wanted to gain access to the elderly lady's property before he strangled her to death. After the attack, he did not flee the scene immediately. Instead, Mackay watched television, then observed the oblivious public out of the window before making himself comfortable in an armchair, and he promptly fell asleep. Instead, the address was only interrupted when he heard the intercom. It was Adele's granddaughter. Mackay decided it was time to leave, but he would have to walk through the communal entrance. Adele's granddaughter later remembered passing a young man on the stairs. The killer was quickly linked to a string of robberies committed in the moneyed areas of London. The victims, always elderly females, were targeted as they entered their properties. Sometimes just their personal effects, like handbags, were snatched. In other cases, the culprit barged his way in to rob their homes. Often the victims' bags would later be found burned. Adele Price had been seen in a supermarket the morning of her death, and the belief was she lost her life at about 5.30 that afternoon. An identikit of the suspect was produced, and it had a remarkable likeness to the man police were hunting. It was very close to his features, although they were unremarkable. The trouble was there was nothing that stood out. He could very well have been one of the thousands of young men residing in or visiting London. Three days later, on March 13th, 1975, Patrick Mackay was once again taken to a mental health facility. He had walked along a train track near the station at Stockwell, and followed the line into a tunnel. However, luckily, law enforcement was at hand to prevent any loss of life. Mackay was detained. His stay at Southwestern Hospital in Stockwell was short, but eventful. After a few days, he manufactured a noose from the cord on the waist of his pyjamas and attempted to hang himself. 
However, once again he was spotted before he could end his life. Surprisingly, it was agreed that Mackay would be allowed to leave the facility after only five days. During this short period, medical notes were taken. Dr. Michael Pritchard observed that Patrick Mackay's mental state was, quote, probably one of psychopathic personality. Not long after Patrick Mackay left the hospital, in fact no more than a few days, the 22-year-old decided to visit an old friend. He travelled to the village of Sean in Kent. His destination, a pretty cottage. It was the home of someone he knew. Unfortunately for Father Anthony Crean, Mackay appeared at his front door. The 63-year-old met Mackay with surprise. As with Isabella Griffiths, Father Crean sensed this was not a friendly visit and began shouting and tried to flee. According to Mackay, his victim managed to escape into a bathroom momentarily. But when Mackay forced open the door, the priest fell into the bath and that's where he took his final breath. Mackay showed no mercy as he stabbed his victim. He then used an axe to finish the awful task he started and frenziedly struck the incapacitated victim repeatedly and so aggressively it exposed the priest's brain matter. Mackay stayed to watch Father Crean's life slip away before he fled the scene. The heavily disfigured body would later be discovered by a nun. Patrick Mackay's mother did not live far from Sean, so her son returned to his childhood home and helped himself to some chicken Marion had cooked that day. Mackay took the meat to a photo booth where he devoured the chicken as four pictures were snapped in quick succession. In the last image, Mackay is wild-eyed with clenched teeth. An expressive hand as tense as his face is posed almost claw-like in front of the camera. Patrick Mackay had been befriended by the Roman Catholic priest 18 months earlier in 1973 when he was living near his mother's home in Kent. In spite of their friendship, Mackay was caught stealing a £30 cheque after breaking into Father Crean's home. Father Crean pleaded for leniency, but Patrick Mackay was ordered to pay the money back a summons which Mackay ignored after reimbursing just £5 of the debt owed. Although their friendship was over, for some reason it was Mackay who felt resentment towards Father Crean for what had happened.
two days would pass since the killing of Father Crean when Patrick Mackay was caught in Stockwell, southwest London. His feud with the priest had quickly made him the prime suspect. While in custody without much prompting, Mackay admitted to the murders of not only Father Anthony Crean, Isabella Griffiths and Adele Price, but also much to the surprise of detectives. He confessed to a further eight murders. In the interview room, Patrick Mackay told police about the brutal killing of Isabella Griffiths. I gained entry, and she was backed along the passageway. I realised that I had done something I shouldn't have done, and I went a bit frantic. The next thing I knew, she was on the floor. The next thing I knew, I had her round the neck. Mackay went on to describe details which only the killer would know. I felt the blade embed itself in the floor. I then left her there and sat down and produced a bottle of scotch, which I emptied. After Mackay drank the alcohol, he looked at Isabella and decided to take the knife out of her chest. He rearranged her by posing her arms across her body. He touched her eyelids to close them, then covered her in fabric. Mackay, quote, wanted to make her a bit more comfortable. As for the attack on Adele Price, the killer described a more effortless, deadly encounter. Perhaps because he didn't know her, possibly because she wasn't the first person he had killed. Mackay told the police, it seemed to happen so much quicker than the Cheen Walk one. As I strangled her, she seemed to shrink to the floor. I started to think over what I had done with my life. I didn't particularly think about murdering the old woman. The next thing I remember is hearing a rattling sound. It seemed to wake me up. Addressing the brutal attack on Father Crean and why he went to the priest's house in Kent, Mackay remarked in the interview room, I wanted to explain about the money to him because things had been left rather unsettled the last time I saw him. When I saw him, I said I have come to talk things over about the money I owe you. He seemed to panic a bit and started running from the house. Expounding on what happened during the attack, Mackay continued. I grabbed him and he fell to the floor. He said, don't hurt me. And this made me more excitable and I started hitting him. He then broke loose and ran into the bathroom. I picked up an axe just lying in a box under the stairs and barged the door, toppling him into the bath. I knifed him and hit him many times with the axe. I turned on the taps and stayed looking at him for about two hours. I lunged at his throat lots of times, sticking and sticking and sticking it. He was making noises, like gurgling from his throat. Then I hit him in the temple with it. It went right in, 
right up to the hilt. Then I tried to stab him in the top of his head. I banged away, but it just buckled the knife up, really bent it. When I got him in the side of the head, he put his hand up and he slid down the bath, making a long, long, long noise. Describing how he felt, the killer explained. I just got the urge to use the axe and take his head off. The blood made me excited. It made me worse. I suppose it was the noise you make. The human body is a funny thing. The anatomy. The killer recounted that he saw it as a quote, sort of curtain coming down. Mackay was questioned about all of the crimes he committed, including the attacks on older women in which he said he bashed a lot of old ladies. He was frustrated with the treatment he received at Southwestern Hospital in Stockwell. It was always talk and sympathy, no constructive help, he said. At the time of each of these killings, I was very depressed and numbed physically due to my peculiar feelings. Patrick Mackay's mother Marion was fearful of the repercussions and backlash due to her son's reputation and offences. She moved and changed her name in an effort to protect her daughters from both verbal and physical attacks. While Patrick Mackay was on remand in Brixton Prison, he told a fellow inmate he was locked up for murdering 11 people. Perhaps it was just a boastful claim, but it was curious considering he was awaiting trial for three murders. Mackay was not afraid to repeat this story to anyone that would listen, including inquisitive officers. When speaking to a doctor about his actions, Patrick Mackay said, Any man doing a killing enjoys it. It's an animal experience. This is the end of episode nine. To hear more on the trial and crimes of Patrick Mackay, please tune in next week. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Mark Tomney, and everyone who supports us on Patreon. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.